0: Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Hope you're doing well. How you doing? Awesome. So, uh, as you can tell, we're talking about the question: Is God real today? And we're going to get to that in just a minute. First, I want to welcome all of you who've joined us for this series, The God Questions. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at some of the central questions people ask about God and ask about Christianity. And I believe this series will be very helpful for all of us because every one of us gets into conversations with people who have these kind of questions. Okay, So even if you are not personally asking these kind of questions, remember that there are people around you who have these questions on their minds, whether they're vocalizing them or not. And we're instructed to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have, for the faith that we have. And we're to do that with gentleness and respect. So I want to think about those two words, gentleness and respect, for just a minute. What good is it to have the right answer if we give it in such a way that it closes off the person that we're speaking to? Like Jesus, we need to be able to share our faith with a humble spirit, not coercively. Like Jesus, we need to be able to speak the truth in love, in a winsome way. With gentleness and respect so maybe you have a friend or a family member who thinks that science has proven there is no God or maybe there's a co-worker who is sort of always challenging you or, or making fun of your faith or maybe you're skeptical about God yourself maybe you do have some doubts of your own that creep in from time to time and you're just a little afraid to voice those doubts You know, about three months ago, the Barna Research Group conducted a survey of Americans who either identified themselves as Christians or used to be followers of Christ, and what they found is that doubts and questions are pervasive. Sixty-five percent of those questions said they had questions or doubts about their faith. And so the reality is that we're talking today about something that is very, very commonplace, By the way, the reality is most of those who said yes to having experienced doubts or questions about their faith also said those doubts led them to now have a stronger faith. And so there is no reason to be afraid to deal with our questions. In fact, I believe it's essential that we do look at them and pull them out and deal with them as honestly as possible. And I appreciated this summary of... Uh, this survey, this was written by Roxanne Stone of the Barner Research Group. Here's what she said. She said, Spiritual doubt has been a reality of the Christian journey since the disciples, and today is no different. Just like the first century Christians, their 21st century counterparts question aspects of their theology, doubt the existence of God, and mourn his seeming absence during hard times. Doubt remains a flip side on the same coin as faith. For the majority of Christians, this inevitable doubt is a catalyst to spiritual growth. Isn't that great? So, with that in view, please pull out your sermon notes or open up your app to them now and let's get to work on the God questions. And of course, the first question is Is God real? Because if the answer to that question is no, then there's not really much sense in looking at the other questions about him, right? And so that is not a new question at all. Is God real? For example, the Apostle Paul encountered the same kind of uncertainty as he walked through the streets of Athens some 2,000 years ago. So if you would, grab your Bible and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. If you're taking the Bible in the chair... Rack in front of you, it's page 926, or Acts 17:22. Listen as I read this passage aloud, please. Acts 17:22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, "To the unknown God." is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you for revealing truth to us, for revealing yourself to us through your son, Jesus, whom you rose from the dead. And Father, as we open your word, as we study and think about these things today, may your spirit teach us and prompt us. May our faith be strengthened. We ask these things for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul refers here to... And speaking to the Athenians about the altar that he noticed in their city, this altar to the unknown God. And that's an illustration, I believe, of humanity's quest to answer the question, does God exist? We're going to come back to Paul's encounter in Athens in a moment. But first I want to consider the choices before us in response to this question, is God real? And I start here because the options are really quite simple. In short, there's only three possible or likely answers to that question, is God real? The first one is the answer of the atheist. And the atheist says, no, there is no God. God is not real. Basically, the atheist views all concepts of God to be sort of human inventions. And the one thing that I would say about this position is that it sort of assumes complete knowledge if you stop and think about it. So let's imagine a circle, if you would, on your sermon notes or even on the front of your bulletin, make a circle or an oval to represent all knowledge of everything in the universe, okay? Just go ahead and write a circle representing all knowledge or all knowledge about everything. And then within that circle, if you would, make a smaller circle that represents your personal knowledge. How would you compare... smaller circle of your personal knowledge to the larger circle of all knowledge that there is. See, even the most overconfident person would be compelled to draw a relatively small circle within the larger circle, right? So here's my point. It's unreasonable to say, I know that God does not exist. The position of the atheist is not very reasonable. Because a person would have to know everything about everything to be able to say that conclusively. Otherwise, there would always be the possibility that God, in fact, does exist, but that he is just outside of your personal realm of knowledge. Let me illustrate it this way. Missionaries have had difficulty trying to describe and explain ice to people who live in tropical parts of the world who have never experienced snow or ice or freezing conditions. In fact, the more missionaries tried to explain ice cubes and snow and, and water freezing so hard that you could walk on it, the, the harder the natives would just laugh at them. It was just completely outside of their realm of experience. Does that mean that ice doesn't exist or that ice isn't real? Of course not. Okay? Okay. It just means that it's outside their personal experience and knowledge. And similarly, the fact that some people don't believe in God, don't believe that he exists, doesn't mean that he's not real. It just means that they have yet to discover him for themselves. So one possible answer to the question is the response of the atheist. No, there is no God. Here's the second possible response. The agnostic says, well, maybe, and since no one is omniscient, this is actually, I believe, a much more honest answer intellectually. It's the admission that maybe there's a God, but I'm not totally sure. He might exist, but I don't know him personally. And this is essentially what some of the people in Athens were saying when they set up this altar to the unknown God. There may be a God out there someplace, but I don't know him, but I want to make sure I don't offend him, so I'm going to offer sacrifices to the unknown God. As we look at this option, the option of the agnostic who says maybe, we must overcome some misconceptions about what it means to prove, what it means to prove there's a God, right? You see, some people wrongly demand scientific proof of God okay as though he could somehow be found through experimentation like science uses so the scientific method is the use of controlled and repeatable experiments to prove a hypothesis for example the scientific method can be used to prove that smoking increases the probability of lung cancer you can go into a lab you can set that experiment up you can do it repeatedly and study it Or, or that a molecule of water contains two hydrogen atoms for each oxygen atom. Okay? But there are some kinds of knowledge that lie outside the scope of scientific inquiry, such as historical knowledge and personal experience and spiritual knowledge. For example, verdicts in a courtroom are usually based upon legal historical evidence rather than scientific proof. And the point is this, God's existence can't be determined by the kind of scientific evidence that forces someone to believe. This is where faith comes in. Not faith against the evidence or in spite of the evidence, but in response to the evidence. You see, belief in God is not a leap into the dark, but it's a step into the light, according to the evidence that we've been given. So the atheist says, no, there is no God. The agnostic says, there may be a God, but I'm not sure. And the third response is that of the advocate or the believer who says, yes, I believe there is a God. God is real. This is the position the Apostle Paul took in Athens when he reasoned with the people and he declared with certainty God is real. And that he has invaded human existence to redeem fallen mankind in the person of his son. Jesus Christ. We aren't told exactly how Paul reasoned with the Athenians for the existence of God. But today, in general, I want to share with you the case for the existence of God. The case for his existence. Is it reasonable to believe God is real? And I would say the answer is yes. So let's say that somebody you know has questions about God, if he's real or not. Here's how you might have a conversation with him or some of the things you might talk about. Let's begin with a biblical observation. The Bible never attempts to prove the existence of God. Rather, God is simply presented as reality. For example, consider Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our Bible begins with the words, In the beginning, God. Or consider Psalm 14, which says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So right out of the gate, the Bible presents God as a given and assumes that a wise person can come to that conclusion. You say, but but I can't see him or feel him or touch him. How do I know he's really there? And that is such an important question that that scholars have given that deep thought over the ages. And many have concluded that there are very sound reasons to believe in God. I'm going to give you four of them today, and together I believe these provide compelling evidence that God is real. I've called on them Four Extra Biblical Arguments for God's Existence. These are on your notes as well. Four Extra Biblical Arguments for God's Existence. And by extra biblical, I simply mean these aren't arguments we see people using in the Bible necessarily, but we can illustrate them. We, we can uh, see them supported by Scripture. Here's the first one, the concept of God, sometimes called the ontological argument. The place to start is with the fact that the vast majority of cultures in the world have a concept of God. How do we account for this inherent knowledge and awareness of a divine being? Well, the Apostle Paul would say that this is because God has revealed himself to us. He's made himself known. Uh, Romans 1 is one of the places we see this. Let me read this. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So God created us with this innate sense that he is there. This concept of God argues for the existence of God. Here's a second evidence for the reality of God that's closely connected to that. And that's the origin of matter. Sometimes called the cosmological argument for God. Okay, The existence of Of stuff is what we're talking about here. So the universe exists. It's real, we live in it, we see it, we hear it, we breathe its air. Where did all of this stuff that we see in the universe come from? Here's a principle that we sort of understand intuitively. It's called the principle of cause and effect. Most of us heard about it in science class. It states that every effect has a cause. Cause and effect. So an illustration of that would be, uh, some of you might be just a touch chilly this morning. So it's a little bit cooler than normal in here because that's the effect. The cause is we've been doing demolition for our construction project and the gas lines to our furnaces were removed as part of that demolition. So this weekend and next weekend, we're likely to be just a touch cooler. We have some temporary heaters that are heating us up, but probably not quite as warm as you're used to. So... Our apologies for that. There's a cause for that, and we hope that doesn't last long. So, cause and effect. Another way of stating that is that, uh, that every outcome has a cause that makes it happen. Okay? Likewise, it's logical that the universe has a cause for it. Even atheists believe that the universe has a cause. That's why they suggest or come up with such things as the Big Bang Theory. Okay, so the question isn't whether the universe has an origin, the real question is who or what is the origin? Imagine you're sitting in your home this afternoon watching the Seahawk game or whatever game you're watching and suddenly your glass breaks and this football goes flying across your room where you're watching the game, okay? So obviously I think the first question on your mind would probably not be how did that get in here, but who did that? right who is the cause of that football busting my my window and that football doesn't just come in on its own somebody acted upon it and the point is the universe couldn't just have arisen without a force behind it okay and that's why the bible says this in hebrews chapter 3 for every house is built by someone but the builder of all things Is God houses don't just pop into existence by nothing or from nothing likewise the universe has a builder has a cause as well And like Paul said in Romans 1 people can look at the earth and the sky and the universe about us and their very existence points to the God who created them God is communicating to us through everything around us he's basically saying I'm here I exist And you can tell because I made all of this stuff. We're talking about the principle of cause and effect. The French skeptic Voltaire once said, I shall always be convinced that a watch proves a watchmaker. And in the same way, the existence of our universe is evidence for the existence of God. Well, here's a third evidence for the reality of God, and it's the evidence of design. The design of the universe, sometimes called the teleological argument for God. Basically, from earliest times, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, wholly apart from the Bible, have concluded God must exist based on what they observe about the universe. Not just that it exists, but how it runs, how it is put together. Here's a quote from the God Questions book that we're using in our small groups for this study, and I love this quote from page 14. He wrote, Chart the path of the stars, measure the decay rate of an atom, examine the laws of physics. Everything you study is well-ordered, precise, and complex. Stare up into the night sky, walk a beach at sunset, put a snowflake under a microscope. Everywhere you look, our world is saturated with beauty. This beauty and complexity in the universe point not only to a creator, but also to the nature of the creator ingenious, beautiful, and detailed. I like that. A couple of other quotations that are very similar. Isaac Newton, famous scientist, said this. He said, When I look at the solar system, I see the earth at the right distance from the sun to receive the proper amount of heat and light. This did not happen by chance. Albert Einstein said, The mathematical precision of the universe reveals the mathematical mind of God. In other words, the design of our universe demands a designer. And the fine-tuning of the universe is just one example of that. There are examples all around us and even within us. Like the biological information encoded into every single cell of your body and mind, So it's no wonder that David wrote this in Psalm 139. David said, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Amen. Sir Frederick Coyle was an English astronomer and mathematician at the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge. He's actually the one who coined the term the Big Bang Theory, and he said this at one time. He said, the odds of even the simplest cell forming by chance are like believing that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard could assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. The design of our universe is very strong evidence for the existence of a Creator, for God. So we've seen the ontological evidence for God, the cosmological evidence, the teleological evidence. Finally, let's consider the anthropological evidence. And that is the uniqueness of mankind. We are unique. We're different from the rest of creation in that we possess intellect and moral judgment self-awareness, and even an awareness of God Himself. So how can we honestly explain these differences without acknowledging a God of like nature? So let's consider just one aspect of our humanity, and that's our moral conscience. Okay, Animals don't have moral objections to stealing or, or killing or, or doing bad things, but we do. How do we explain that? Okay, So one of my memories of my early childhood dates back to when I was just five years old. So don't have a lot of memories of age five, but this one I have very, very uh, strongly implanted in in my memory banks. I had the good fortune of growing up in Portland right next to the Heister manufacturing plant. So for a young boy, uh, growing up next door to Heister where they make forklifts and loaders and all kinds of heavy equipment was a sort of eye candy. I loved it. Okay, so One day when I was five, I was down the street at the entrance to the Heister parking lot where all these things were parked, and I saw this car coming toward me, and I have no idea what possessed me. But I reached down and I picked up a handful of gravel from the gravel road and waited for the car to get close and tossed it up in the air just as the car came. Perfect timing, it just rained gravel down onto this car as it drove by me. So, kind of stupid five-year-old kid, right? So, I'm standing right there, obviously. I have no idea, but I remember very vividly that event, and you can probably guess why now, okay? <laughs> my dad made it memorable. So, uh, like, like most parents, I, I doubt if my dad ever warned me, ever even thought he needed to warn me not to throw gra- gravel at passing cars, but... Uh, Intuitively, as soon as I did that, I knew that was wrong. And I knew I was in trouble. So I made a beeline for home. And of course, it was very simple for the driver of that car to turn the car around and follow me to my house and (laughs) come up to that front door and knock on the door after I was hiding inside the house. And I have no idea what he said to my dad. Well, I kind of have an idea, but I didn't hear it. But I will never forget what my dad did to me. And we'll just say that he left a vivid impression that uh, that was not a good idea. (laughs) Or have you ever done something and had sort of that alarm go off in your head that said, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. This is wrong. Don't do that. But maybe you did it anyway and realized that that was not good. See, we all have this certain sense that some things are right and we should do them and other things are wrong and we shouldn't do them. And sociologists and anthropologists have studied cultures all over the world, including very isolated cultures that have no contact with other people. And one of the things that they have discovered is that people, even in these isolated cultures without outside contact, have very similar values, such as you shouldn't murder, and you shouldn't steal, and you shouldn't sleep with your neighbor's spouse, and so on. And anthropologists tell us that this is a universal thing. Yes, there are ethical codes that vary slightly from person to person and even culture to culture, but every human being they've discovered has innate moral standards. So where did those standards come from? I would suggest to you that the most reasonable explanation is that they came from a higher moral source, from a creator who put them into our hearts. In fact, that's what, exactly what the Bible teaches. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law so that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts, Either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. If a moral law exists, a sense of the difference between right and wrong, then there must be a moral lawgiver, And therefore, it's reasonable for us to conclude God exists. And he is the one that we received that from. So those are the logical arguments for the reality of God. The evidence that we see in the world that we live in. Alright? But some people will still ask, but but isn't there some concrete evidence that I can get a hold of for God's reality? And friend, I believe the answer to that is yes as well. Okay? So number three is this: one indisputable historical evidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection. Many people point out the kind of arguments we've been looking at up to now are not absolute proof. In fact, I began by saying that. These are not scientific proofs for something. They are evidences, all right? Perhaps the main thing they do is they help us to see the inadequacies of trying to explain our world and life without the existence of God. But Christians actually believe that the main way we know about God and that Christianity is true is not through reasoning and argument, but rather it's through the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And Jesus Christ came onto the scene here on earth with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, claiming, claiming to be God in human flesh. Let me say that again. Others have claimed to be great prophets or founders of religion, but only Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh. And the supreme confirmation of his claims was his resurrection from the grave. Listen, if Jesus rose from the dead, then obviously God must exist. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. And in fact, when Paul was speaking to the Athenians, he pointed them to the resurrection. Did you remember that? Acts 17 again, the last couple of verses I read. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him. From the dead. Some people think that the resurrection of Jesus is something that Christians just sort of take on faith. Not so. Okay, there are many, many concrete proofs of the resurrection, historical evidences whereby we know that it happened in space-time history. And if the resurrection is true as the Bible claims, of course, that necessitates that God exists and that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. For Jesus is, as it says in Hebrews 1.3, the exact reprata- representation of God's glory. He came God, as God in the flesh to reveal God to us, and he re- represents him perfectly. And ultimately, Christianity rises or falls on the reality of the resurrection. With this, the Bible agrees, by the way. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. See, the resurrection validates and proves the existence of God as revealed in Scripture. So if you or anyone you know has questions about God, I suggest that you make re- the resurrection part of the evidence that you have them examine. It's, it's key. It's central. So let's talk about some application, all right? Three next steps on your notes today. Here's number one. I will open my heart to the evidence for God's existence. So I'm reminded of Jesus' words to Thomas, Doubting Thomas, the Disciple who refused to believe in the resurrection until he saw the evidence and touched it with his own hands. Remember? After appearing to Thomas and providing the proof, Jesus said to him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. In other words, people sometimes get obsessed with seeking proof but are never satisfied. In fact, it's possible for the arguments for God's existence to sort of distract us from God himself, if you think about it. We mustn't be so focused on external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. Listen, if you sincerely seek God, I believe he will make himself known to you. In fact, he promises that over and over in Scripture. Paul preached that in Athens in that passage we read a little bit earlier. To the people he was speaking to there, worshiping the unknown God, he said that people should seek God in the hope of feeling their way to him and that they would find him, for he is actually not far from each of us. Or listen to what God promised the Israelites through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You shall seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You shall seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you want to figure out if God is real, God says you need to seek him with all your heart. He doesn't reveal himself to those who are just sort of half-hearted about it. Yeah, it'd be nice to know, but who cares? You know, I want to challenge you today to open up your heart to the evidence and to seek God with your whole being and get ready for him to show up, reveal himself to you. Make it a priority to seek him and know him. Next step number two is I will join a small group to explore the God questions. So our Small groups are just getting started up, and we're studying the book together called The God Questions. We're getting stellar reports from our small groups already as they kick off. This is a perfect time to sign up and join one of the small groups. We're just beginning question number one, is God real this week? So I'd encourage you to either stop by the small group table in the foyer and sign up today or sign up on your communication card, mark the box, check check the box, or you can even go on the website and, and sign up online. But it's a perfect time to get into one of the small groups, all right? Also, uh, begin to process these questions and learn how to answer the questions that people in your life are asking. Get the most out of this study this fall is what I'm saying. This is also a great week to stop by the table, by the way, and pick up the God Questions book, all right? If you haven't already gotten the book and if you haven't started reading, please do so right away. I will also prepare you for the conversations your children are going to be having with you. So if you have children in our Promised Land classes or in our youth small groups, they're also processing these same questions, and uh, I believe you'd do well to be ready to process it with them. Join a small group, pick up the book, and get reading, please. Next step three, I will put my faith in Christ for forgiveness. I will put my faith in Christ. So I'm convinced that there are far, far better reasons to believe in God than to not believe in God. Philosophical reasons, logical reasons, historical reasons, experiential reasons, and so on. In light of the evidence, in fact, I believe it takes far greater faith to be an atheist than to be a Christian. No matter... How much evidence you have, though, no matter how good the arguments are, it still requires a step of faith. And as sort of the last word on the subject. The Bible says this in Hebrews eleven six: 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Friend, maybe you're at a place in your life today where you're coming to believe, yes, I believe God does exist or might exist, and that he has made a way for me to know him. And that way is through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says, as many as received him, as many as received Christ, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, we come to God, we develop a relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. We, we believe that God sent Jesus to the earth to die for our sins, and He not only died, but He was buried and He rose again on the third day. That's what Jesus called being born again, having our sins forgiven so we can have eternal life. But that verse says that we have to not only believe, but we have to receive Him. So we have a decision to make to accept his forgiveness and to put our faith in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And I'd like to give you a chance to receive Christ today if you haven't yet. So as we close in prayer, know that part of this prayer is for you an invitation to receive Christ today. So would you bow with me, please? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for revealing yourself to us in your word and also for revealing yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, as we think about our faith and as we think about our belief that you are real, I pray that you would guide our conversations with others. I pray, Father, that you would give us a ready answer for the hope that we have and that we would speak that with gentleness and respect. Help us to grow in our own conviction that you exist, Father, and that you have sent Jesus to reveal yourself to us and to be the Savior of the world. And Father, I offer this invitation for those here today that want to receive Christ as their own Savior. And friend, if that's you, I just invite you to pray silently right now in your heart of hearts and say something like this to God God, I need your forgiveness. I confess that I have broken my own moral standards and I have sinned against your word, and broken your loss. And so today I receive Jesus as my Savior. I put my faith in his death and resurrection to cover my sin. And I invite him into my life today. Father, thank you for that gift of forgiveness and eternal life in your Son. And we give you thanks for all of these things and that you are real. Everyone agreed and said, amen.